Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. with my notes on my computer, but uh, both, both printers have no ink, <laughs> so um, <clears throat> we'll see how it goes. I guess I'm saving paper. <clears throat> this is our first day, first full day uh, together, and uh, when I look at your faces, it looks like it's going pretty good. Um, some of you have a lot of experience with this practice. And for some of you, you have more experience with the sitting practice and less with the yoga practice. Some more with the yoga practice, less with the sitting practice. So this is a very rare thing. To be able to have a retreat where we're combining both disciplines. I've always felt that a sitting practice without physical practice is really missing something. And I've always felt that the yoga practice without the sitting practice... Once upon a time you couldn't even say yoga without the sitting. That's kind of a new phenomenon that you can even say that. But that the yoga practice without the sitting practice I think is really missing something. And the whole thing without the context of climate change and economic inequality and the fact that this beautiful earth that we're embedded in uh, sometimes feels like not part of us uh, is also really missing something. So I hope on a retreat like this we can feel how we're healing ourselves and also how we're embedding ourselves back uh, in our bodies which are not separate from those birds that you hear outside and the trees. And that I hope as you walk around as the retreat goes on, especially when you walk outside, that you'll think to yourself, everything Michael said about this place not being the most beautiful is wrong. <laughs> this is the most beautiful place. We've been told this story, you know, that um, we're separate from that. We've been told this story that we're separate from each other. And all of this has been enabled by fossil fuels. Because when you have coal, 
then you can have uh, your automobile and you can fly wherever you want. You don't have to build factories on rivers. They can be anywhere. You don't have to study the wind to sail your ships. You can sail them whenever you want, wherever you want. And all of this has changed the narrative about our lives uh, internally in us, where we think that we're separate from each other and separate from what's out there. And all of this creates some discord in us that contributes to the existential discord human beings have always felt through different centuries, different times. So, uh, as the weekend goes on, I hope we can look at this from different angles. But today, because it's uh, our first full day practicing together, I wanted to talk about uh, this. Your mind right now. So every moment that we're mindful weakens greed and it weakens hatred and boredom. The three poisons. Can you feel this? You're sitting and you're spinning in your favorite neuroses, also called thoughts. And you'll notice that behind the energy behind those thoughts usually falls into one of these fires. Greed, what can I get? I don't know if any of you are planners, but you can see in planning uh, some greed. Or maybe the story that you tell is fueled by anger. And there's degradations of anger, fear, aversion, maybe just a little aversion. Or boredom. which tends to occur when you're not getting what you want, mm -hmm. even if you don't know what you want. So when you come back to the breath, you get purified. Because whatever it is you were obsessed with loses its power. And it's so hard because most of the time it's like, our thoughts are here all over my face. Do you know what I mean by that? They're like right here. And I can't see that that's not actually reality. Do you know what I mean when I say that? It's like you're thinking, 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 and you can't see that you're identified with what you're thinking about. And then if you can't see that, it leads to a kind of emotional instability. because you can't get any distance from your experience. And maybe it's happening right now. Maybe I'm talking and you're just deciding what you like about what I'm saying and what you don't like about what I'm saying and whether this agrees with your worldview and whether I'm gonna talk about Hillary Clinton and healthcare again. But when our minds are quiet, we're less defensive. And when we're undefended, um, we can feel maybe some of the dumb things we did this week, maybe some of the stupid things we said, maybe we can forgive some of the people who said stupid things to us. 
And this always happens on retreat. As soon as you start getting quiet, you start being aware of all the things you wish you didn't do. Or all the things you wish other people didn't do. So, you might feel some remorse when you sit, which is healthy. Guilt is not. It's natural when you see something stupid you've done to feel guilty. But guilt is really a waste of energy because it has so much self in it. Self-lacerating. So with a little bit of empathy, with some kindness, guilt can collapse and there's just some remorse. Noticing, oh, why did I do that? That was a dumb thing to do. Without all the selfing that comes with it. If you put salt in the glass and then you taste it, it will taste salty. And if you take salt and you put it in the pond that's out there, and then you taste the pond water, you probably won't taste a spoonful of salt. And likewise with your mind, if your mind is very narrow and all you can think about is yourself and your life, then whatever you put in there is going to be suffering. Because it's always going to be about you. But if you have a bigger awareness, a larger sense of yourself that includes other people in the sky, then um, when some poison comes in, then it's okay, you can feel the poison. But a much grander perspective. So that you can feel your life as a big open sky or a big open field, and birds move through, and the weather moves through, and the temperature changes, and it's okay. Even if they're suffering, it's okay. So that what's happening all the time is each moment you're breathing, you're aware, you're bowing deeply to that moment. If bowing doesn't come natural to you, don't bother. If it feels like borrowed from another culture, forget about it. But you should feel in your heart that your practice is devotional. Being totally devoted to each moment. And then maybe once in a while, without even realizing it, you might start bowing. I want to talk today about a character uh, in the Zen tradition named Dongshan. He was born in 807, and he died in 869. His name in Chinese is Dongshan. Uh, for those of you who study Japanese Zen, his name is Tozan, which is actually, interestingly enough, Tozan is the toe of Soto. So he's the founder of Soto Zen. And um, he's also the author of a famous a text that gets chanted daily in meditation halls called the uh, Song of the Jewel Mirror Samadhi. Maybe some of you might know it. So here's the story. 
Dongshan was practicing with his teacher, Yunyan. And eventually, as it's time always with students and teachers, it was time to leave. And so Yunyan was leaving Dongshan, or Dongshan was leaving Yunyan, and Dongshan said to Yunyan, when I leave here, and people ask me, what was your teaching? What should I tell them? In the old days, you know, uh, students would leave their teacher with an illustration of the teacher or some calligraphy from the teacher to show other people, you know, this is who they studied with. But here there's a different thing going on. Dongshan saying, when people ask me that I studied with you, what should I tell them you taught me? What's, what's your teaching? What's your dharma? Which is also saying, what's your practice, right? So, Yunyan thinks for a minute. It, does, it never says how long. You know, but it says he stopped and he thought for a minute. And then he said to Dongshan, just this is it. Just this is it. I love this teaching. It's pithy. Just this is it. It's interesting. By the way, I've never had so many letters before in the note box on any retreat. I'm glad every single person's written at least one note to me. <laughs> you too, Andrea? Oh yeah, this yeah. is the most notes I've ever I had. Know. I know, like, I, I feel like the books that I brought to read, I'm never gonna get to them, so. Um, but it's interesting that more than half of them are about impermanence. More than half of them are talking about our difficulty or resistance to working with the impermanence that is our life. Everything, our children, our relationships, our marriages, our bank account, the whole thing. So, um, what if we radicalized our life to the point where we could really say that our practice is that this is it? that we don't need something outside of this moment. Like take all the particles of space in this room, divide them in half, divide them in half again, divide them in half again, and see that every one of those particles is your mother. Every one of those particles is giving birth to the causes and conditions that are this moment. And that this is it. This is your life. And that your anger and your greed are constantly obscuring this. And that when you sit, it's natural that you then start to feel a connection to the fact that everything is giving birth to you in every moment, all the time. And that your practice isn't leading anywhere. <laughs> And this is the punchline of meditation practice, is that the whole of the practice has its fruition in this moment, and that you can't even hold on to it. And that is so hard, because as soon as you love somebody, or you love something, 
you say, oh, I love this thing, and then immediately we hold on to it. But even the present moment does not exist. You can't hold it. Where does it start and end? I mean, you put it on a book cover and you sell lots of books. But there is no present moment. It doesn't exist. So, Dongshan asked Yunyan, if someone asks me to describe your teaching, what should I say? And Yunyan pauses and says, just this is it. Story says that when he heard this, Dongshan sank into thought. I love that. So it's interesting because most, uh, for those of you who know Zen stories, they're always really fast. Like, teacher says something, quick answer, and then it becomes an epic story, you know. But this is a little different. Dongshan is really slow. And Yunyan's really slow. Yunyan stops and says, this is, just this is it. And then... Dongshan sinks, sinks into deep thought, and then Yunyan says to Dongshan, You are in charge of this great matter, so you should be thoroughgoing. And those were his last words. And they never saw each other again. So imagine this imagine someone's going to say to you, How is your workshop? And you won't know what to say because you're planning ahead, you're thinking. So you come to me and you say, Michael, uh, if somebody says, what did you teach this weekend? What would you say? But you do this knowing that deep in your heart, you're never going to see me again. Because it's possible, right? I could give this talk and then I won't be here tomorrow. I should do that sometime. I should give a talk, say, listen carefully, and then just leave. So you'd get used to the fact that like, I might not be here. <laughs> yeah. This was, you know, there was a famous French psychoanalyst named Jacques Lacan. Uh, something else to Google. I was obsessed with his work when I was young. And uh, he used to, in his psychotherapy sessions with people, he, he was famous for not having a time where the session ended. You never knew when it was going to stop. So you'd be talking, and then that was it. End of session. <laughs> we should do that with a retreat. <laughs> You pay as if you'll be here for a year, but you never know when it will end. So just this. How can our practice be taking care of just this, and just this, and just this? You're sitting. It's a really hard moment. You're feeling really irritable. Just sitting with this. And then you come back to your breath, and a few breaths later, that's gone. And there's something else. And then just this. Just this. So just this means in this moment, connected to what's happening, one with what's happening, and usually most teachers end by saying that. But I'm going to add one more piece. It's not just being here with what's happening. It's being here with what's happening and not holding on to it. not holding on to anything. So then Yunyan goes on and says, 
to Dongshan. You're in charge of this. In other words, like you're going to go teach. So now you're in charge of embodying this. You must be most thoroughgoing. I would translate this as you need to embody this. I say this all the time to parents. People are always saying, please give me some techniques so I can teach my kids how to be more meditative. And I always say, first you need to embody it. You need to model it. So then, um, Dongshan leaves. Does everybody picture the story? Right? He leaves. He just, he's just bowed. He's been told to take care of the teaching. The teaching is this is it. And then he leaves. He's never going to see his teacher again. They both know it. And he, cro- he, he goes and he walks along a river. And it doesn't say if he looks into the river, if he looks into the river while he's walking next to the river, or if he looks into the river when he's crossing a bridge. But let's picture this. It's late in the day, just like this. He's walking by the river. He's probably heavy in his heart after feeling like he's leaving his teacher. And then he looks into the river and he sees himself. He sees his image and it completely shifts his experience of himself. He goes straight back to his cabin, which you might do today also. And he writes a poem. And here's what he writes. Just don't seek from others, or you'll be estranged from yourself. I now go alone, and everywhere I meet it. It is now me, but I am not it. Everyone should understand this to merge with suchness. Another interpretation is, everywhere I go, I meet an image of myself, but that's not me. Or, maybe that is me. You look into the river, your image is flowing in the river, that's you, And it's not you, but maybe that's the only you that you can experience as you. You look in the mirror and say, that's me. And then you say, that's not me. But then you say, but that's the only me that I can experience as an image of me. In other words, being a person is a very strange thing. (laughs) So, I'm handing you uh, something that you have to hand back um, at the end of the retreat. But you have to promise. Does everybody promise they're going to give it back? Okay. Uh, in, the 19, uh, in the late 1960s, there was a very uh, famous Zen teacher in San Francisco named Shinra Suzuki, whose work I'm obsessed with, many of you also. Um, he translated Dongshan's poem. And it was never published. Um, and uh, somebody gave it to me last week and said, here's Dongshan's poem. 
in Shinra Suzuki's translation, this is amazing, wait till you read it. But you can't give it to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to study it together, but then you have to give it back to me because you can't share it with anybody. But it's so incredible that I can't keep it to myself. So, actually, I need a copy, too. There's, um, uh, there should be exactly enough for everyone. The next one, you want to? Um, there's, is there not enough? There's still coming. Yeah, and you can share it, too. Okay, so here we go. Um, this is my handwriting, not his handwriting. Um, can I read it? Do not try to see... Oh, so this is written by someone whose mother tongue is Japanese, and obviously his English was okay, which actually makes every translation better. Do not try to see objective world. You, which is given as an object to see is quite different from you, yourself. I am going my own way, and I meet myself, which includes everything I meet. I am not something which I can see as an object. When you understand self, which includes everything, you have your own true way. Isn't that so beautiful? So good. Let's read that again. Do not try to see objective world. Isn't that what we're doing all the time? Oh, it's really like that. Oh yeah, so-and-so is really angry. So-and-so is really a jealous person. Or uh, that was really a bad relationship. Or this is a really good marriage. Do not try to see objective world. You which is given as an object to see, right? So that's you looking at your image, which is what you're doing in meditation. I mean, when you're not following your breath, this is what you're doing. You're looking at yourself as an object. So there's, a, there's an experience of a me that's objectifying itself. And this happens, let me just add here, that when you're awake and you're moving around in the world, we're always moving around from this experience of being outside of ourselves, seeing ourselves moving around. Do you know what I'm talking about? I always think of uh, that uh, I, we had a young person living with us uh, almost for the past year, and she said to me, oh, whenever uh, we're in a room... Whenever you're in a room and someone pulls out a camera to take a picture, every young woman moves her posture into the best side so that she can be seen from the best side for the photo. And I thought, really, is that true? And she said, oh, you don't understand. <laughs> but we do this in different ways, all of us, all the time. And we're not having fun with it. We're taking it very seriously. So, you which is given as an object to see is quite different from you yourself. I'm going my own way. And I meet myself. So, Dongshan has left Yunyan. 
And he's saying to himself, he sees himself in the river, and then he says to himself, I'm going my own way. And I meet myself, which includes everything. So in this moment, who you are includes everything. But what happens when we're awake is that usually who we are is just the narrow sense of me. Then when you're falling asleep, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. You're, you're lying, mostly because I'm sleeping for the first time really well in a long time. And you're, you lie down and you start drifting off to sleep. And then something happens where you experience an, a, a suspension of the story of me that's happening all the time. Do you know what I mean? In that liminal space as you're falling asleep. And then, as soon as you go into dream sleep, the structure of the ego's back in the same way it is when you're waking. So when you're dreaming, either you're the main character from the perspective of you, or you're watching yourself. It's always those two perspectives as the main character of the dream. You're always the main character of the dream in the same way you are in the dream of daily life when you're dreaming. And so that's why meditators are very interested in how when you're sleeping, you can wake up while you're sleeping without waking up. So you're dreaming, but you wake up while you're dreaming, and you see yourself in the dream, and you don't identify with yourself. Exactly the same practice we're doing when we're in meditation practice. You're in meditative practice, and you're in a dream, and you wake up. And you're in a dream again, and you wake up. And you're in a dream again, and you wake up. And every time you wake up, you go your own way. You become independent. You live your own life. And every time you're lost in the dream of compulsion, of analysis, of self-judgment, you're doing someone else's life. You're in a dream. Someone else's dream. The culture's dream. Capitalism's dream. Your gender's dream. Your parents' dream. Oh, this isn't the body I was supposed to get. Well, wake up from that dream. Oh, this isn't the mind I'm supposed to have. I'm supposed to be a peaceful meditator. Well, wake up from that dream, and this is it. So he's saying, I go my own way. And I meet myself, which includes everything. Isn't that true? That, that if you don't identify with the self-making that happens all the time, and you start coming back to your breath, then you experience yourself as whatever is happening in that moment, rather than as a thing. The self is the temperature. The self is this thought. The self is you. Self is you. The self is the grass. So whatever you're experiencing, that's you. As opposed to a you that's experiencing the you experiencing the object. Does this make sense? Some of you are like, what on earth is he talking about? I am not something which I can see as an object. 
When you understand self, which includes everything, you have your own true way. When you understand yourself as being whatever's showing up right now, then you have your own true way. Your true way. One of the things that drives me crazy about most spiritual teachers nowadays, non-dual teachers, pretend I didn't say this, but I'm going to say this, <laughs> is they all have exactly the same enlightenment story. They experience themselves as pure consciousness, or they experience themselves as one with everything. They experience themselves as eternal, that they're not their real self. It's the same, everybody has the same enlightenment. This is a different path. This is that your awakening is awakening to your experience of your life, not somebody else's experience. It can only be your experience in this moment, and it can only be experienced in this moment. And a moment that's free of greed, and free of anger, and free of boredom, is nirvana. And when the Buddha defines nirvana, which is what we translate as enlightenment, which is also problematic, when the Buddha defines nirvana, he says nirvana is a moment free of greed, anger, and confusion. That's his definition. So any moment that's not characterized by anger is a moment of freedom. And then, the next moment, brings something else. So you can't hold on to that. So if you have this idea that your enlightenment is going to be this state where you're free of all those things, well, good luck. That's a great story. Maizumi Roshi says this, Intimacy is simply realizing that your true nature and the phenomenal world are meeting right here, right now, as your life. Intimacy is simply realizing that your true nature, your undefended version of yourself. Do you know what I mean by that? Mm -hmm. And the phenomenal world are meeting right here, right now, as your life. And it's interesting because in Dongshan's song, The Precious Jewel Samadhi, he talks about two arrows meeting each other. So, this begs a question. How do you meet yourself? Can you see that when you're sitting? But that's actually the question that we're all working with. In every moment, how do you meet yourself? Have you tried to open to something really uncomfortable without moving? Or when the uncomfortable feelings start, do you just start planning or feeling guilty or just going to some place where you could think about the stuff you usually think about? 
when the most frightening thing happens and you feel it in meditation practice, you start to see that it's not the most frightening thing. It was the most frightening thing before it happened. Oh, that's going to be the most frightening thing. But then, actually, when you're with whatever you thought was the most frightening thing, it's not the most frightening thing. It's just what's actually happening. It's not an object. So the only way to really meet yourself is with kindness. Did everybody hear that? Just kindness. The Dalai Lama says, whenever it's possible, be kind, it's always possible. Whenever it's possible, be kind, it's always possible. If you have a warm feeling for your body, and you have a warm feeling for your breath, then you'll also start to have a warm feeling towards difficult mental states. And the neural circuitry for embodiment, they say, overlaps with the same neural circuitry for empathy. So the more you can be embodied in your own kind attitude towards yourself, uh, the more you can actually feel that kindness towards other people. Let me read what Shinru Suzuki says. Tozan, do you remember who Tozan is? That's Dongshan. Attained enlightenment many times. Once, he was crossing a river and he saw himself reflected in the water and said, Don't try to figure out what you are. If you try to figure out what you are, what you understand will be far away from you. You will not have even an image of yourself. Actually, Shinra Suzuki says, you are in the river. You may say it's a reflection, but if you see carefully with a warm-hearted feeling, it's you. You may think you are warm-hearted, but when you try to understand how warm, you cannot measure the temperature of your feeling. Yet when you see yourself in the water with warm feeling, that's you. And whatever you do, you are there. When you do something, the bodhisattva of wisdom is there. When you have good practice in your everyday life, there is Manjushri. And there's the true you, the real you. And here's my favorite sentence. When you do things with a warm-hearted mind, that is actual practice. That's how to take care of things. So to go on in our practice, we need a very warm feeling. So, takeaway is this. I've always wanted to say that. <laughs> the takeaway is this. <laughs> and you can't take it away. And nirvana is this. Nirvana is now. And that's not a thing either. Because as soon as you objectify it, you make nirvana as something that could happen to you, but you never get nirvana. 
You can't. Because when you make yourself an object, you turn yourself into a theoretical narrative self. But that's not how you experience yourself deep down. So this is all to say that when you sit, you should feel your breathing <laughs> with a warm attitude. So that whatever mental states arise, you can be with the experience without so much drama. And that when you turn what's happening into an object, you turn yourself into a subject that's experiencing the object. And then you have anxiety. Because there's no intimacy with what's happening. There's just a creation of a me that it's happening to. Which is why guilt, as I was saying earlier, because someone wrote a couple, two people wrote notes about guilt. That that's why guilt is so exhausting. Because it's a self-conscious emotion. The big difference between guilt and remorse is that in remorse, there's not so much me in it. And in guilt, there's so much more suffering in it than in remorse. There's not that much suffering in remorse because there's not so much of a me in it. I'm glad some of you are writing this down because you might forget. We all forget. That's why we practice. Yeah. I think I said that earlier today. You're going to forget all of this. So we'll see you for the next 12 years. But it's not the same you that comes back every year, you know. It's not the same me that comes back. It's not the same you that will be here tonight. It's not the same you that will be here tomorrow. And being you is so annoying. So exhausting. To have to be you all the time. What if we did this with everything? What if we didn't need our marriages to be the same thing all the time? Maybe you have like a different marriage with the same person every hour. It's just a different marriage. People have these ideas like, oh, there's like the marriage when you first meet, then there's the marriage as you have kids, then there's the marriage when you have teenagers, then there's the marriage of the empty nest, and these are all like different stages of marriage. But what if we took that further and just said, what if there isn't like a marriage as a thing? I think that would save a lot of marriages. It would take marriage off the hook. And then what if we did this with our kids? Like we didn't have sons or daughters. There were just these fluid relationships that were happening. And then we do this with our parents, alive or passed away. And then we do it with ourselves.
we stop trying to be one person or two people all the time. So, to sum up, nirvana is any moment that's not characterized by greed, by aversion, or the confusion of boredom. The moment you're bored, you become interested in it, and then it's not boring. The moment your anger arises, you become interested in your anger, and it doesn't have so much power. It probably turns into um, sorrow, which is a better place to act from than anger. And then when you see your greed, and you really see it, you'll also see that right behind it is generosity. Right behind your greed is generosity. Could you feel that in the corpse pose today? Oh, my life, my life, my life. Oh, yeah, well, guess what? Right behind it, it's okay. It's not your life. It was never your life. So every moment is giving birth to causes and conditions that we think is our life, but it's not our life. And yet, we experience it differently than somebody else. So, good luck. You're really going to need it. <laughs> Because what happens is, if you keep doing this practice, you'll start feeling peaceful. And then when you feel peaceful, you'll start feeling like a very deep calm calmness. And then when you start feeling calm, uh, right in the middle of the calmness, you'll start seeing patterns about yourself that you're not going to like very much. So then you can't cling to the good things about the practice, like peace and calmness, because whenever they come, they always create enough space that then you start to see what you don't like. So then you have to be able to look at that and comb through it, letting those sangskaras, letting that karma go. And then some more peace comes. But then you can't hold on to that. As you know, that as soon as you start feeling calm in meditation practice, you're a few hours away from seeing something you don't want to look at. I always joke about this with my partner because um, whenever I have long periods at home, we always get into like the two or three week zone where I don't have much work and I'm just at home and like everything's amazing. We're going to the beach and we're gardening. And then always, like, difficult stuff starts happening. And I always say, this is so unfair. Why is this happening? Like, everything's so good. And then she always reminds me of, like, it's so good. So that's why, like, this stuff's coming up. <laughs> so now I try not to stay home for too long. <laughs> so I'll say one more thing about... Uh, meditation formally and then I'd like to just have a short break and then we can have a 
some time for questions, if anybody has questions. Which is, um, when you're feeling your breathing, it's really important that you can feel how your breath is relaxed. I want you to work on that, the whole retreat. I really want you to work on that. Because uh, if you can't trust that your body can breathe, the idea of trust or faith really becomes like quite conceptual. So at a really base physical level, we start to trust in our body breathing. And you don't have to worry about your life without your body. Because nobody knows what life is like without the body. Because there's no way to come back and tell us what life is like without a body. So we just don't know. But then again, it doesn't matter. Because you don't even know what's going to happen in a second. You don't know. So we take this attitude of, I don't know. And we mix it with this attitude of kindness so that we're really open to what's happening. We can try new things. We don't put such rigid walls up in our minds and hearts. And maybe you'll have the courage to spend more time with a less defended version of yourself and let other people spend more time with that person too. Because the people who really suffer are the people around us when we're unconscious. So thank you very much for listening to uh, Dongshan's poem and Yunyan's admonition that just this is it. So there's your koan to work with for the rest of the retreat. This is it. Sometimes that might open things up like, this is it, don't hold on to it. Sometimes it might feel kind of uh, sad, like this is it. And that part will help you not hold on to it. This is it. Last day ever. If this was the last day ever, how would that change your posture? So, thank you very much. Maybe we can just spend uh, a second to stretch our legs, and then we can have a few minutes just to talk if anybody has questions or comments.